Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Hear God's words. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem was troubled with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the Lord. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they'd offered him gifts and gold, frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This ends the reading of God's word. Praise be to the Lord. You can be seated. Well, I believe most of us are fairly aware that there was wise men, that there were these dudes who showed up somewhere when Jesus was a, a child or an infant and gave Jesus some gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And perhaps, perhaps you've even been a wise man. And, you know, if you grew up in the church or went to it, like I had my son who's in kindergarten uh, was a wise man for his school play this year, um, which was... He, he didn't appreciate it. Um, he didn't appreciate the role. And, and what is interesting, though, about the story and the accounts of wise men and our songs about wise men and our Christmas cards that depict the wise men is that for the vast majority of the time, they're simply wrong, that they don't get it correctly. There's a lot about this passage that we've seemed to have assumed over the history of the church and actually that we, we don't even know because it hasn't been revealed in the text. For example, here's some things we don't know. We don't know how many wise men there actually were. Many of you have also often said that there was three wise men, but we do that because there's three gifts. But most likely, there were far more than three of them. Nobody travels from somewhere in Persia all the way from Iraq or Iran area all the way over to Israel on camels or horses, which would have taken many months with just three dudes that would not have been safe. More than likely, this is a party of somewhere between a caravan of 20 to 30 people within this caravan. So we don't, but we don't know how many exactly there were. We don't know the entirely full nature of their occupation. The Greek word here is magi. They were a magi, which is, uh, we're not entirely sure what that means. For some, it could have been kind of a priestly role and kind of pagan occultic practices, but they also had a philosophical role. They were astronomers and astrologers and scientists and philosophers. They were kind of this mixed bag of seers and wise men. That of, of ancient and of old, they were most likely quite wealthy, but were they kings? We're not sure if they were kings or royalty. Perhaps they were, but it doesn't necessarily tell us. 
We don't know their names, even though church history, uh, there were those who claimed to know who they were, saying that one was from India and one was from Greeks and, and one's from another part of Persia and, and giving them names that were appropriate to those particular places of origin. We don't know when they specifically met Jesus. That we're pretty sure they, they weren't there when Jesus was born as an infant. But we do know it was probably sometime before Jesus was two years old. Because it appears, you know, if you continue to read in Matthew chapter 2, Herod, in order to get a hold of this one who might be called king of the Jews, has all the children in the area of Bethlehem slaughtered under the age of two. Which means that Herod thought from his conversations with the wise men that when the star shone, it had been at least under two years since that, that star that they saw in the sky had begun to shine. We don't know exactly how to explain even the star itself. There's been various attempts to explain the star throughout church history. Some thought it must have been a comet of some sort that they, that they followed. A very slow-moving comet, apparently. Uh, some, a guy named Johannes Kepler, who's actually the father of, mo- father of modern astronomy, explained it as the conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn actually coming so close that from the ground, from man's perspective, it would look like they were one giant star. And he said that this actually happened in um, B.C. 7, which would have been about the time, possibly, that Jesus was born. Still others have said that the star is simply the Shekinah glory of God in the sky. Kind of like the pillar of fire or the cloud of smoke that led the Israelites. But in reality, we don't really know anything about the star. Where it came from, why it suddenly showed up, or if it was even a necessarily a star. Now all that being said makes it an odd thing that it is this story that has historically been looked at and called in church history the epiphany. A story that is in which we seem to know very little is called the epiphany. Now, when you think of the word epiphany, what do you think about? You think about having a light bulb moment, about going, aha, something has been revealed to me. In the church historical calendar, at the end of the 12 days of Christmas, actually on January 6th every year, begins what is called in church liturgy the, uh, the season of epiphany. And it is rooted in this story of the wise men showing up to Jesus. And the word epiphany means to reveal. That something, an epiphany means something happens dramatically and unexpectedly. An intuition or a new perception has become real to you. The essence of something has become known to you. Kind of like our light bulb moments. And so what we see here, in an odd way, this story, which in many ways has begun clouded by our own speculation, and we have all of these unknowns, in the midst of much mystery that surrounds Jesus and his birth and this story, oddly enough, Matthew is using this story to reveal much, to give light bulb moments for those who are his readers. And so we ask this very important interpretive question. If you study the Bible, often one of the best questions to ask is this, why did the writer put this in there? And the reason why Matthew put this in here is to reveal a number of things to us. Four things that, that Matthew reveals to us. Four epiphanies, we might say, are found in this account. We're going to walk through this. Here's the first one. First, what is Matthew revealing? Matthew is revealing the presence of the king. 
Matthew's revealing to us the presence of the king. In other words, what he is doing is looking at Jesus and saying, Jesus is the king and the Messiah that you have longed for. And Matthew chapter 1 and chapter 2, if you were to look at the whole scope of the literary nature of Matthew and see why is Matthew writing what he is writing, it is obvious that Matthew is actually putting forth a case giving evidence for Jesus as the Messiah. In verses 1 through 17 of Matthew chapter 1, he provides us as testimony that Jesus is the Son of God, the genealogy of Jesus, reflecting all the way back to his Davidic sonship and all the way back to Adam, he gives us the genealogy of Jesus, showing that he is from the line of David, which was where Messiah was supposed to come from. Second, in verses 18 through 25 of Matthew chapter 1, Matthew then testifies to the virgin birth, that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah who is truly God and fully God and fully man, testifying to Jesus being the Christ, the one who is to come. And now in Matthew 2, we are barraged with a fulfillment that Jesus is the fulfillment of three Old Testament prophecies. Now try not to fall asleep because most of us just kind of glaze over when we look at the Old Testament prophecies and we go, yeah, 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 Jesus fulfilled a few things. But hang with me here because I want you to see three, three quick um, things I want to connect. First, the star. The star. The star is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And you go, really? That's an odd thing. Here, it's in a bizarre place, and, but one of the um, funniest and tongue-in-cheek sort of stories in all of the Old Testament. You may, have, you, you may not have read the book of Numbers in quite a while, but there is a story there about a king named Balak and a dude named Balaam. And Balak is the king of Moab, and he is getting quite scared of the people of Israel as they're wandering through the wilderness because they're growing in strength and defeating all those who get in their way. And they have defeated Egypt. And so in order to, he, he doesn't like this idea of Israel coming on his territory and so he wants to somehow, by some spiritual means, curse the Israelites. And so he beckons this man who is described as a man who is from the eastern mountains, who is known as a seer or a prophet, a guy named Balaam. And he says, hey, I want you to come and I want you to prophesy curses over the people of Israel. And so after Balaam has agreed to do this, he is off to go to a place where he can curse Israel from up on high and put his hand over the, over the people of Israel and say, cursed be you. And yet while he is on the way, suddenly Balaam's donkey stops dead in his tracks. And Balaam uh, continues, starts to beat on his donkey, and his donkey won't go anywhere. I'm sure he began to say all sorts of terrible things to his donkey. In fact, it says he curses him and beats him. And finally, the donkey looks at him and says, dude, what is the deal? Have I ever been difficult? Now, what is astonishing, though, is that Balaam doesn't seem, he actually speaks back to the donkey, and in this moment, he is revealed to him that he sees what the donkey sees, which is the angel of God with an enormous sword shining in front of him because he wants to take Balaam out because you don't mess with the people of God. And instead, the angel of the Lord says, no, instead of cursing the people of God, I want you to bless them. And here's the blessing of Balaam in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And the rest of Balaam's oracle or prophecy, I know this is very opaque language, but his oracle goes on to talk about how God would deliver his people from their enemies by the one who is revealed with the star. So here's the picture. Balaam, a man from the east is called by a, interacts with a scared king 
and is asked to do something devious and instead blesses by pointing to the king who is known by the coming and the shining of a star. Does that sound familiar? This was actually widely regarded within rabbinical writings after the, in the Old Testament. And if you look at the various uh, rabbinical writings we found from the, the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, is they understood that this, this prophecy of Balaam is pointing towards the Messiah who is to come. Second prophecy is the wise men show up in, in Jerusalem and they say, hey, where's the king of the Jews? And Herod calls for himself, the scribes and the chief priests, and they actually come and they say, hey, where's the king of the Jews supposed to be born? The Messiah, the one who is coming. And they say, they quote Micah chapter 5, which Andy preached on a couple weeks ago. And very clearly they say he is to be born where? In Bethlehem. And so once again, Matthew is making an argument. He is testifying of who Jesus is, that Jesus is the rightful ruler and Messiah who is to come because of his place of origin. And this is important because there is those who would actually have claimed that Jesus just conjured up this whole idea. And he kind of did things in his life to purposely fulfill prophecy, which he did do. But infants cannot determine where they're going to be born. And so Matthew is actually saying, listen, the location of where Jesus is born actually points to him being the Messiah, the king who has come. Lastly, the, the Magi, or the foreigners themselves, actually is a, a fulfillment and points to Jesus as the king being present with us, being present on earth. Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 through 6. I'm going to read it quickly, see if you can see the connection. He says this, Isaiah does, Arise, shine, for a light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. And the nations shall come to your light. So nations will come and kings to the brightness of your rising. So people will gather to this king, this light in the world. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather, the nations gather, they come to you. Your son shall come from afar and your daughter shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be Radiant, and your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you, and the wealth of the nations shall come to you. Gold, frankincense, myrrh, wealthy, expensive gifts. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord's. In other words, this is the last sign that Matthew is giving, that the Old Testament prophets testify to this one Jesus who has come, who has been born in Bethlehem, but also we see that when foreigners gather around him in worship, that this is pointing to fact and testifying that Jesus is indeed the one that the Old Testament spoke about. And so, you're going, okay, that's nice, but what's the summary here? What's the point of this? Simply that the star confirms all aspects of the story confirm that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Messiah, and he is the King who has come. The place of his birth points to it, and the presence of people from various nations point to you the fact that he is the King. And so what Matthew is doing is he is barking like a dog who has treed a critter. His nose is pointed towards it, and his eyes are set on what is up in the tree, and he is barking his fooled head off saying, Hey! Hey, hey, hey! Hey! Hey, 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 Jesus is the king. That's what he's saying. He's the one we've been waiting for. Look at the evidence. It's here. It's obvious. Second thing. All right. That's the nerdy part. We move on. Second, Matthew is revealing for us. He's giving us an epiphany about this king. He's revealing for us the worthiness of this king. 
the worthiness, worthiness of this king. Now, all these passages that we just looked at from Numbers, Micah, Isaiah, I mean, these are B-side tracks, right? Connect that this Messiah will be the king of Israel. But what I want you to see here is that there is a comparison that he is making. Not only is he saying that Jesus is the king, but he is making a comparison between Jesus and the earthly kings of this world. Because the one that Jesus is compared to in this passage is a dude named Herod. Herod. Herod is not simply just a foil who tries to kill Jesus. He is actually the antithesis of Jesus. You see, Herod, well, Herod is simply the worst, I mean, he's, he stinks. Let's just go through some of the life of Herod. Herod was a puppet king. He wasn't even Jewish, and he claimed to be king of the Jews. He had no right to the throne. He was placed there by the Roman Empire. He was actually a brutal dictator. He was known for his brutal treatment of his people and his horrendous taxation upon the people of Israel, so that they were impoverished by the weight of taxation that he put on them so that he could get wealthy and so he could build huge, enormous buildings that were so ostentatious and reflected his own glory, that he could put his names on him and say, look what Herod has done. Even worse, he was actually a psychotic, paranoid person. He had his wife killed because he thought she was conspiring against him. For good measure, he also killed her mother and her brother too. He killed his own mother. He killed three of his own sons, and he killed more than, members, more than half of the members of the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish kind of parliament of the day. This is a bad dude. So bad that Jewish historian Josephus calls him a pitiless monster. And Caesar Augustus, who's the one who put him in power, gave a little bit of an anti-Semitic joke, even though Herod was not a Jew. But he says this. He said, it would be better to be Herod's pig than one of Herod's sons. What is he saying? You're safer to be a pig around Herod because Jews don't eat pork. You get it? It's a joke, people. He's making a joke. It's, it's safer to be a pig around Herod, he says, instead of being his sons. So we have this paranoid king, and suddenly these magi show up saying, where is the newborn king of the Jews? And this upsets Herod very greatly and upsets all of Jerusalem because nobody knows what this lunatic might do when he gets angry. And Matthew is revealing to us the wonder and beauty of Jesus against the stark contrast of the kings of this world. You see, when the priests and scribes quote, from Micah chapter 5 here in the middle of this text. What does it say in Micah chapter 5 about the nature and character of this king? Here, I'm going to read it for you and draw two things. Here's what Micah chapter 5 says. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel, who is coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. He continues, therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Micah is saying two things about this king who was born in Bethlehem. First, he is a king of old. He is the ancient of days, which is, which is old prophetic speak for he is eternal. And it's his throne. He's the king who has the, lineage, who has the lineage and the right to be on this throne from not just way, way, way back to David, but from way back to eternity is what he's saying. 
In other words, he's making a comparison by quoting this text, particularly here that Matthew brings this up, by saying that here is Herod, who is the one who is flaunting, who thinks he is the rightful, rightful person on the throne, who is a rightful owner of the throne, is not, but instead here is the true king, who is the true rightful owner of the throne. Herod is a, rent, a renter of the throne. Actually, he's simply a squatter. He's a squatter on the throne of Israel. He's not the true king of the Jews, but here is the one who has is the true king of the Jews. The king has shown up, the one who is the true shepherd of Israel. And all the kings and the parties of the world, in, this, in that day and in this day, say, we are the ruler, follow us. But no one has the right to demand your allegiance. No one has the right to demand your allegiance. No power or principality, no earthly leader has the, has the authority to demand any kind of allegiance to you for you to bow the knee to them in any way. Only Jesus does. Here's the other thing it says about how beautiful and wonderful this king is. Not only is he eternal of old, but he also says he is a shepherd king. Micah says he is a shepherd king. He's one who helps you dwell secure he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the, Lord, of the Lord. In other words, this king is a good shepherd who comes to care for his people. That means he serves them. He sacrifices for them. He protects them. He provides for them. Herod, like all the kings of this world, all the rulers and principalities of this world, he, what does he do? He says, die for me. Serve me. Pay taxes to me. Give your life to me. Herod is a parasite who consumes his people all the strength and wealth of their life. He has no care for his people. He will actually destroy and not care for the most vulnerable in his society, the infants and the women and children. Herod, in his insecurity, does everything he can, what? To remain strong, to remain unkillable, to be safe and secure so that no one can move him off his throne. Herod will move heaven and earth to destroy anyone who would dare, who might even be any kind of threat to his kingship. But what about the shepherd king? The shepherd king, what does he do? You see, Jesus is the shepherd king who does not come to be served, but to serve. Who came to seek and save the lost. Who came to give his life for his citizens. The true king will step down from his throne. He will give it up in order to provide for his people. Look at the lengths that your shepherd king will go to to bring his sheep into his pasture. The true king will move heaven and earth. To make you his. Jesus will make himself killable. Insecure in the sense that he can be destroyed. In order to win for himself a people. Jesus is the king of the Jews. And Pontius Pilate. A number, another puppet king of this world. With a cruel joke. Will label Jesus on the cross. Where we see this most beautifully. That he is indeed the king of the Jews. And in all the irony of ironies. It is true. Because he is. The worthiness of this king, the one who is a shepherd, who gives his life as a ransom for his citizen. This is a king who is worthy of worship. Understand this. This is the bad news, brothers and sisters, that all of us come into this world searching for a king. As the old song goes, right, you got to serve somebody, and we serve somebody. And so the question is, who are you going to serve have you given your allegiance over to the abusive kings of this world? For whose, for whose kingdom are you living? Perhaps you are the abusive king who runs your life. 
Perhaps it's your work or the king labeled money or the king labeled safety and security and control. And these things are wringing the life out of your life. They don't serve you. But King Jesus, this is the good news. King Jesus is so much better. And the good news, beloved, is that he has come in flesh to be the king who rules as a shepherd, who leads us to green pastures, who leads us beside still riders, who brings us into places of peace and rest, who protects us in the death valleys, who destroys the wolves and puts his own body in the way. That's your king. He is so worthy of worship. You see him? That's what Matthew's trying to tell us about him. Third revelation, third epiphany about the king. Matthew is revealing the way to the king. How do we come to know this king? How do we come to know? Don't you want a king like this, Matthew would say? And how do we come to know him? Well, many seek to compare how do you come to know Jesus by comparing the wise men and Herod. I think that's the false comparison. The right comparison is to compare Jesus and Herod. The priests are the ones that you actually compare with the wise men here in this, in this passage. Let me look at the comparison here between the priests and these wise men. A couple of things to see. How do the wise men come to seek Jesus and find Jesus and serve Jesus as the king? First, the wise men seek the king, even before they know God's word necessarily. It's an interesting thing here. They see a star. It was a natural phenomenon. It may have been an unusual thing, but it was a natural phenomenon. And yet God uses the natural world to speak to us. If you were to go read Psalm 19, what does it say there in the first half of Psalm 19? How God has spoken through the stars in the sky, how all of creation worships him and reflects who he is. And the wise men, yes, we can learn something about our God from the nature, natural worlds. And these wise men, as great studiers of God's world, are men who see in what we call general revelation. Again, that word revealing, revelation. They see in God's nature... The patterns of God's way of dealing in this world, something, some answer, some shift in the universe that made them say, something is happening. And so they have no, so what do they do in the midst of that? They are people who seek to find the true king. They are seekers. And frankly, this is so much better to be a seeker than the simpletons of this world. You see, very often we are lazy people, aren't we? I'm just a simple man. But that's not who we're called to be. Proverbs speaks a lot about simple men. They're fools is another way of calling them. But here we see wise men who are wise in the ways of the world and say, I want to know the truth of this world. I want to know the nature of what God has put into this world. And so what they do, they go through endless lengths seemingly to get to find out the answer for this Jesus is. Think about what they risk. They leave home. They travel for months. It is not safe to travel at this time. They go into a foreign empire, a foreign place, in order to try to find this king of the Jews. So let me ask you this. Are you seeking and finding? Are you seeking for the truth, or are you a simpleton? Are you somebody who doesn't like to read at all? Are you somebody who's made up your mind about Jesus without ever actually considering him and his truth claims? You see, all we have in comparison to the wise men or the priests, you know what the priests are? The priests, it's interesting, the priests are the scribes are the ones, they're the knowledgeable ones about the word of God. And Herod calls them and says, hey, where's Jesus supposed to be born? And they go, Bethlehem. But do they care? No. They just kind of, yeah, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. Okay, we're going to go back to doing our thing. We're going to go back to working in the temple, and we're going to keep a copy in the Old Testament scriptures. They, the, the wise men show up and say, hey, 
We think that the world is showing us that the king has been born and they don't care. These guys just go, eh. And is the, re- the question for, for, for me to you is this. Are you more like the priest that you kind of look at your life and you go, we're just simply too busy to care. I've got a job and I've got kids and I've, you know, I've got a lawn to mow. And that's just, I don't really need to be thinking about all these difficult things. That's for those really, really smart people. I'm happy to be over here. Listen, Jesus says that is actually foolishness. It's actual foolishness. The wise men seek. Here's the second thing the wise men do. Those who find the way to the king are those who submit to the word of the king. Now, what is really critical here is while the natural world can reveal to us something about our God, it cannot say, give you a saving knowledge of our God. The, the wise men come to Jerusalem and they say, we don't know where this king of the Jews is. They kind of follow the star, and then, but the star ultimately is not, the, is not the thing that leads them to Bethlehem. What leads them and points them their way to Bethlehem? It's the word of God. It's the Old Testament in which the word of God is opened. In other words, what Matthew is showing you is that worldly wisdom, looking at the natural world and be a seeker for God is a great thing, but it can only take you so far. It cannot ultimately lead you to the king. It is actually limited. The world often can tell us that there's a problem, can't it? It doesn't take great studies on critical race theory and poverty theory and all these sociological aspects to look at all the things in this world, the natural order of this world, and go, hey, things are not the way they should be. It's easy to see that there's a problem, but it's difficult, far more difficult is to see the one who's come to fix it. Where's the salvation? And the ultimate mystery of the revealing of this birth is only revealed in the special revelation of Scripture. If you want to know the king, the true king of this world, the good and beautiful king who is worth your life, then you have to learn about him and come to meet him in his word. And this is how it happens. They look at Micah chapter 5. And it points them to Bethlehem, and so they hightail it to Bethlehem. Compare this to the priests. The chief priests and the scribes, they know the prophecy in Micah 5. That not only do they not get excited, but they don't even go along with the Magi to see if any of these things are true. They don't seem to care. And so because, what do they have? They have a religious tradition. They know the word, but they don't know the king. You see, Jesus actually later on says this in John chapter 5, verse 39. He looks at the Pharisees and the scribes and the priests. He says this, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you may have eternal life, but it is them that bear witness to me. You need the scriptures, but have you found the king? Have you listened to the fact that it's pointing to Jesus? It is the way to directing you to the one who you need for salvation. A real person A real person is who we're after. So let me ask you this. Are you seeking Jesus and his word? Are you seeking to know who this king is? In your studies, if you're a skeptic, have you actually ever opened the Bible? Or have you simply taken the the secondhand scholars of this world and said, yeah, yeah, they know best. Have you taken the Bart Ehrmans and the Da Vinci Codes and go, oh yeah, that's real genius academic work right there. And you've never actually opened the Bible for yourself? Listen, very often the reason why we don't want to do this is because Jesus claims, comes in and claims to be king, and that threatens our autonomy. Not only are we lazy, but we don't actually want to know if he is the king. It would be better for my life if he wasn't in the center of it. But to accept Jesus, and this is the last step if you want to know the king, to accept Jesus and to know the king rightly, the way of the king is not just to seek, not just to submit to his word, but lastly to sacrifice your life for him. You want to know his worth and his value. 
See, that's what the wise men do. It says that they, in verse 10 and verse 11, that with exceeding great joy, with rejoicing, they go to find out who this Messiah is, this king. And in verse 11, we see true worship because they bring gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These are unbelievably expensive gifts to bring to him. This may be significant aspects of these men's wealth and prosperity in this world. But they come and they say, he is worthy of worship. And it's not simply that they give physical gifts. That is great. We make much of the physical gifts. But ultimately what we see is they're in giving the physical gifts. What are they giving to the king? Their very selves. Their lives. Some, it's, it's interesting in God's providence, he uses these gifts abundantly in Jesus' life. Most people speculate that in the rest of Matthew chapter 2, that it's the, it's the, the, the use of these gifts that is the way that Jesus' family was able to escape Herod when Herod tries to kill all the children. And how they, what they live on while they're in Egypt. But ultimately, what does Jesus want is he wants their life. He wants their life. He wants to say, that he wants them to be living sacrifices, as it says in Romans chapter 12. That they brought themselves. And you think about it, it wasn't simply the gifts that was wealthy and expensive. Here or there, they've been put on a task by the king of Israel. Herod says, hey, come report back to me when you find them. And what do they do? They escape and go another way. There are men who risk their lives in order to serve the king. You will never know the worth of your king, how wonderful and beautiful he is until you actually submit to him and actually begin to experience life as under his rule and his reign in your life. Lastly, one last thing, the epiphany of Matthew chapter 2. Matthew is revealing to us the mystery of the king. The mystery of the king. The word epiphany is related to another word that is used quite often in the New Testament's. And is the word mystery. Mystery. Now, when we think of the word mystery, we think of a murder mystery. We think of Sherlock Holmes. But rather in the Bible, a mystery is something that must be revealed by God. It must be revealed by God. It is something we don't know about and that we only come to know as God reveals the mysteries that he's put in this world. The things that are cloudy and have shadows around them and that we are opaque and what the Bible tells us is that God, though, loves to reveal the mysteries of this world to his people. And what is the mystery that is revealed in this text? What is it that's made a big deal of when we celebrate Epiphany? It's this. Let me see if you can pick it out. I'm going to use some of the passages from the New Testament and see if you can draw it out of what is the big deal. From the, from the New Testament, here's what it says, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, and Paul says this, that Christ has come and made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to him, things in heaven and things on earth. He goes on to say, and brings up mystery again in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6, and this mystery, this is the mystery that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. One last one, Colossians 1, 26 and 27. And the mystery that is hidden for ages and generations, but is now revealed to his saints, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. I ask you, you play the pastor. You play the preacher and the studier. 
What is the mystery that God is revealing at the epiphany? What is Matthew trying to say? What is so great about this text? What is he saying? Who were these magi? Were they Jews? No, they were men from afar. It is the nations coming to know the gospel of God, the good news of Jesus Christ, that Matthew is the most Jewish of all the gospel writers, that he is writing to a primarily Jewish audience. But what does he say at the very beginning of his gospel? That this good news is for all people. How will he end his gospel? Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, to give you a hint. With the Great Commission saying, now take the good news to all peoples. In other words, what he is saying is this, is Jesus is not merely the king of the Jews. He is the king of the world. He's fulfilling the promise in Abraham to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 when he says, you and the ones who will come for you will be a blessing, not just simply to your descendants, but to all peoples. So Matthew is convinced that Jesus is the king of the world and that what God is doing in, the, in this, and what Matthew is saying in this text is that the Lord is drawing for himself people from every tribe and trung and nation. And guess what? God's still doing that. By revealing, to him, revealing himself to many people, guess what? In very similar ways to the ways he did it with the wise men. How is God primarily moving in the Muslim world? Let me give you one account. The story of a man who was driving in a Middle Eastern country and he stopped to get gas. And he sees a particular man coming towards him. And he's in a fairly unknown part of this Middle Eastern country. He is a little bit nervous and scared. He sees someone who he doesn't know moving towards him and he's moving towards him rather rapidly. And so he, try, he pulls the lever out of the car rather quickly. He's got enough gas to get where he wants to go, jams it back in, gets back in the car and zips out of the, the gas station. And he's driving in this Middle Eastern country with his missionary wife along with him and he says this, as he's driving along down the road, he says there was something in his spirit that said he needed to go back and speak to that man that he was so scared of. And he turns to his wife and says, isn't that crazy? That seems crazy, right? And his wife said, I would rather be the widow of a martyr rather than be married to a coward. And so he turned around. <laughs> and he went back to the gas station and he found this man this Middle Eastern man who was running towards him, and this, he begins to share the gospel with him. And as he's in the midst of sharing the gospel with this man, the man says, I had a dream two nights ago that I was supposed to come here to this gas station, and there would be a white man who would tell me this. Now, what is it we see God using? We see dreams. Maybe it was something he ate. They have really spicy food. <laughs> Perhaps it was the natural world, God speaking in some way, shape, or form. But yet, what did it take to bring him into the fold? The goodness of Jesus Christ. In other words, what God is saying in the epiphany is this revealing that the gospel is for all peoples. And this has always been the case in Psalm 86, verse 9. All the nations, it says, that you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. And therefore, who, who are the people that we see come to worship Jesus? Jesus comes for all peoples, not just for a people from every tribe and tongue and nation, but all kinds of peoples, the rich and the poor. Who are the two types of people who come to worship Jesus' feet when he's a child? 
Wise men, who are the other dudes? Shepherds. You could find two very two different people. The shepherds, they're racially and ethnically Jewish. The wise men are Gentiles. Intellectually, the shepherds are uneducated. Wise men, they're the educated elite. Shepherds, they're the impoverished of the impoverished in the Jewish world. The wise men, they're the rich and the elite and the powerful. But despite their differences, what unites them? It is the good news of Jesus Christ that leads them to worship the same king. And the mystery of God has been revealed. That he has come to give news, good news, for the whole world world. So let me ask you this. Do you see the global and gracious purposes of God to bring about the glad praise of Christ among all the peoples of the world? If you're not a Jewish person here today, you're not a Jewish person here today, this story should make you go, yay, I understand why there's a a whole season in the life of the church called the epiphany in which we go, that's awesome, because without this, without this king, then you're not saved. But he comes to save all peoples. And think about all that God does to make this happen in this text. Think about it. It's crazy. God calls the Romans the Romans. He, he shows his, good, his providence and control over all things to bring this about. God calls the Romans to tax the whole world so that he can move Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem just so the prophecy could point to this Jesus. In other words, what is he saying? Jesus, God controls the levers of power from heaven. To bring about all this to fulfill this one prophecy. Matthew shows you that God wants pagan possible sorcerers of some kind. A pagan priest to be among the first to worship Jesus at his birthday party. To make a point so he commandeers what to bring them there. He commandeers the stars of the sky in order to alert them that something radical is happening in the world. That this God controls heaven and earth. That he has spoken into this world. Why? So that all peoples might come to worship him. All for his glory. And he's included us. He gets his great glory by bringing people like you and me, the rich and the poor, the Jew, the Gentile, all peoples, the wise and the fools to himself. What has God revealed? He's revealed his glory to us. And what is the response of wise men and women in this room? Worship. Let's do that. Let's pray. Lord, um, perhaps we walked in this room thinking we were familiar with this story. And Lord, I pray that um, maybe the revealing of what is going on in this passage would shine the light of your glory and your grace in a new way. Lord, we also know that um, the revealing comes in all of nature. The revealing comes in your word but I also ask that now that your spirit would illumine hearts in this place to reveal to those who have remained hard-hearted about Jesus or apathetic about Jesus, to reveal yourself to them, that Paul, like the chief priest, was one who was zealous for learning, but his learning has not brought him to Jesus. He had not submitted himself to the evidence of Jesus. And you ran smack dab into him by the power of your spirit. You revealed yourself to him. So, Lord, would you do another epiphany in this room this morning? Would you reveal yourself to the hard-hearted, to the fools who think that they are worldly wise, 
Would you reveal yourself and show yourself to be gracious and good to those who are living for the kingdoms of this world and it's, till, it's kill on their life? Would you show yourself to be the worthy king? So would you do that to this day, Lord, and lead us into praise and worship, glorifying your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.